Olivia Vizacaro currently finds herself atop the bestseller charts for the just-released book, Hashtag Networked. Olivia is one of 20 women lawyers who came together during the struggles of the pandemic and used the crisis as an opportunity for professional and personal growth. Each chapter of the book is authored by a different woman. Olivia Vizacaro's story in the law started at age eight when she announced that she wanted to be a lawyer. What she did not know was that her journey through law school and days as an associate in big law would lead her into coaching lawyers who struggle with the challenges we all face. After confronting the reality that what she wanted her entire life was not feeding her soul, Olivia walked away from big law and started the less stressed lawyer. Her days are spent supporting lawyers who find themselves overworked, overstressed, overwhelmed, and simply over it. Our conversation with Olivia offers insights into where the profession is headed and how lawyers can maximize opportunity for growth inside and outside of the law. Join us for this episode of Iron Advocate as we continue to explore how lawyers can kill it in the practice of law without it killing us. You're listening to Iron Advocate, the podcast dedicated to you, the trial attorney, sage, visionary, warrior, unfiltered, no holds barred, Iron Advocate. Join Bob Levant, Jeff Rebel, and today's top legal minds on a journey to discover how to kill it in the law without it killing you. Because being the best advocate for others begins with being the best advocate for yourself. Hey, Olivia, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you uh, spend a lot of your days talking with, uh, with lawyers, um, I think particularly a lot of women in the law. Can you share with us what are the themes or the constants that you hear that lead so many folks to be miserable? Uh, and unhappy in the law? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Top of mind for everyone that I speak with is time scarcity. Time scarcity is just so pervasive and it's something that people see as such a concrete fact that's just unchangeable, the way that they think about time, not having enough time, time controls them. Uh, They just need more of it. If they had more of it, everything would be better. And when we think about time that way, we really squander the time that we do have. We end up working in a very reactionary, unintentional manner. And it, or people shut down. I really see one of two sets. Either people that go into like chronic overworking and don't have an off switch and they're addicted to the phone and the email on the phone, really not being able to shut off. And then on the other side of that, you've got people that just feel so paralyzed by the stress and overwhelm that come with time scarcity that they shut down. They go into like major procrastination mode. So time scarcity is a huge one. Second one, um, I really call them the the three P's of the problems that I see. Perfectionism comes up with basically all the people that I work with. So learning how to, my coach uses the phrase like the goal should be B minus work. When I hear B minus work, I just cringe immediately. So I, the people that I work with, I really try and get them to focus on B plus work and that being good enough, but perfectionism, people pleasing is another huge issue. Um, And then both of those tend to lead into procrastination. So that's really what creates all of people's time stress or stressors related to work. So let me jump on one of those, which is the perfectionism. Yeah. Um, How much are lawyers 
chasing perfectionism like kind of buckshot as opposed to sniper fire. So, so how much of it is that it's like everything has to be perfect and they're not kind of executing on both the vision of the case that they might be working on and their overall vision for where they're trying to get to? I think that I think that's right on both points. So that's that very reactionary, unintentional action. It's very messy, and it ex, it expends a ton of energy, and doesn't really produce the result that you want to at the end of the day. So um, lawyers are so I kind of describe like that stress, overwhelm, and anxiety like a hot potato. That when you know it gets tossed to you and you start to feel that emotion. You just want to throw it away as quickly as possible. And that's that really unintentional kind of buckshot approach, right? As opposed to taking a deep breath, figuring out why you're overwhelmed and stressed, which is the work that I do with people, and then figuring out what result matters most for you to create and reverse engineering backwards, right? Really methodical, really thoughtful. And I would say people don't do that on the micro level on a case-to-case basis. They just start working and see where it gets them, hoping they can run around and play whack-a-mole or hit all the spinning plates and give them a good good spin and then run to the other ones. That also works with careers uh, overall. And I think lawyers as a group really struggle with asking and answering the question, what do I want, both on that micro level and on a larger scale. What have you found to get lawyers out of their heads and out of the neurotic, discursive, circular thinking that keeps them in place, as Freud said, you can't solve a problem at the level the problem was created. What have you found to get people out of that into a deeper place in themselves? Have you found any, could you summarize how you get people out of that place? Because they're just stuck when they're in that place. They are stuck. So I start by showing them why they're stuck. The problem's always one of two things, a thought you're thinking or a feeling you're unwilling to feel. And we really, I think awareness is the key to solving every problem, really understand what's going on on a mindset level to begin to kind of pull apart. I describe it as like a tangled necklace, but if like, or a tangled ball of yarn, if the tangled ball of yarn is the problem of being stuck, you really need to pull that apart like thread by thread in order to unpack it. I like to start by asking people to figure out what they don't want. That tends to be a lot easier for lawyers to identify and sort of methodically working backwards. Like, okay, now we know that what you don't want. Now let's move closer towards what you do. And what I see being um, a hangup that keeps people in indecision is that they're so afraid of making a wrong decision. And it's this really weird Uh, like tipping point that I see with people's careers because we made, I don't know if it's just uh, lack of awareness or, you know, confidence of youth that we don't carry with us the older we get, but we become so paralyzed and frightened to make the wrong decision going forward. Who knows? Maybe it's law school that teaches us to really focus on having the, making the right decision and achieving the right result. But People become so afraid to make a decision and make any move because they're afraid of it being the wrong one. When like you never knew if law school was going to be the right or wrong path, but you made that decision. And we really slow down because of, again, that time scarcity. It'll be a waste of time if they pick the wrong one. So they paralyze themselves. Olivia, no, you go, Jeff. 
Yeah. So, so what you're saying is that, you know, what you're saying runs through the law. I'll give you an example. Bob and I talk about litigation all the time and we're in front of a judge. Judges are not as much trying to get it right as they're afraid of getting it wrong. They don't want to appear on the front page of a newspaper, not having, you know, given a restraining order and the person goes out and commits violence. They're always, it's, it's wired into the brain of lawyers. So to me, and, and the older you get, the more stuck you are because you have a mortgage to pay and you have, you know, you can be invested in your career and you can be very good at it, but it may not be feeding you. So, you know, the question Bob and I always have, and we'd like to talk to other people who are sort of in this space as you are, you know, what are the things that, how do you convince a lawyer that, as you just said, awareness shifts or awareness heals, which is a, you know, the, the foundation of mindfulness. How do you get a skeptical lawyer to simply be aware and know that that'll lead to healing when they're so used to saying, I got to do something. And they're ju you're just asking them to be aware. What have you found that helps them do that? So uh, for the audio version of this, I'll explain it, but you guys can see the chalkboard behind my head, which has uh, the coaching tool that I use with my clients called the model. Brooke Castillo, uh, who's my master coach, she created this model and it's the tool that I really use to facilitate all of my coaching. And the reason I love it, you know, they say lawyers don't like math uh, or, you know, that type of analytics. I love formulas. And this is really an applicable tool that you can apply to any situation and you plug it in. And the premise is this. All circumstances are neutral. Circumstances are facts that we would all agree upon. So for my trial attorneys out there, words that someone says that we could read on a transcript right? Footage that we could watch on a television screen that we would all agree. Jeff crossed the road, right? True facts. And then our brain serves us up thoughts about circumstances, about neutral circumstances. Our thoughts aren't neutral. They're either positive or negative. And it's our thoughts that cause our feelings. Feelings are just one word emotions that we experience throughout our body. And we're really taught growing up, the crux of that is that the circumstances themselves are neutral. The facts are the facts. Our brain serves us up thoughts about them. And it's our thoughts that cause our feelings. We're trained and taught, even as children, that circumstances cause how we feel, which make people feel really out of control, really helpless, all the things that lawyers hate to feel, really uncertain, right? So learning that it's not about the actions. So circumstances are neutral. Thoughts cause our feelings. Feelings drive our action. Action creates our results. And when you realize that you have to go beyond the action that you're taking, that you have to figure out why you're taking negative action and figure out what you need to think and feel in order to take positive action, plugging it into a formula with that repetition, really, it's kind of like, you know, briefing a case in law school. You do it enough times, you can spot the holding in a case. The model offers people a real framework with which to work through this stuff. But my experience, myself included, for so many lawyers you have to be willing to sit with your junk and your fear and your anxiety uh, that quite frankly, we live with everywhere at every turn in the law before you can get to really using the formula. Um, so if, if, if you're talking to that, that lawyer who is either frozen by their fear and anxiety or is just doing it this way and muscling through because that's how we've always done it. And that's how I did it for a long time. Um, talk to that lawyer for, you know, a minute or less. The classic, listen, the classic old white dude 
who's running a big law firm, okay, who doesn't want to hear from coaching or mindset or emotions. Um, why should that lawyer, and quite frankly, every lawyer working under him, have a coach? Because no matter what level you're at, you can perform better. So that kind of goes back to the growth versus fixed mindset concept that you can always just be improving. But mindset affects every aspect of your business. It affects how productive your employees are. It affects how productive you are, which means it affects your bottom line. It affects the quality of your work. It affects your ability to help and serve clients. It affects every aspect of your business and it is a money issue. So I know firm leaders who are that conservative type worry about their bottom line. This is a bottom line issue. People tell me how, tell, t- tell me how it's helping my bottom line uh, to pay you to coach my lawyers. So if we're working under a billable hour model, uh, I heard Gary Vaynerchuk say this years ago and it's, it was when I was still in big law and I like laughed with how simplistic it is. But like, if you want, if your business model is built on people being at work and working more, they need to feel good in order to do that. Old, you know, the old way of doing things is like, Oh, suck it up, get it done. And you'll get a talk. If you're, if you're struggling, if you're not doing that, you'll get a talking to, and we're going to kind of light a fire under you, right? The lighting a fire model doesn't work. It works perhaps temporarily, but the thing with mindset work is that you learn and become aware that if you want a positive result, you need to have a positive mindset, feel positively, take positive action and create that positive result. If any part of that, your thinking, your feelings, or your actions negative, you're only going to create a negative result. So that's where it matters. It doesn't cross over. People think that it does, but it doesn't. Now, some of that is working through your own stuff, your own anxieties. Mm-hmm. You, uh, this week, I believe, uh, have a book that was released that is uh, zooming to the top of the bestseller charts on Amazon. Thank you. Um, so talk to us about what it took to put yourself out there like that. Um, the book has a story. Um, you know, a, a story of the power of, of really teamwork and networking. Um, and if you can speak to that, but through the lens of what you had to do personally to get in a position to put yourself out there. Yeah. Uh, so the book is called hashtag networked and it's, uh, it's an anthology of 20 women lawyers who have all had different experiences, but a similar collective experience through the pandemic coming together, trying to network uh, in a time of social distancing, which has been really cool. I decided, the thing that I love about the book is that we each have our own story. Every chapter is written by a different different author. And there's two narratives going on at the same time. It's everyone's kind of backstory of how they came to this group, uh, which was formed by a close friend and co-author, Patricia Baxter. And it was a way for women to come, come together and network. So everyone has their backstory and then their collective story about how showing up in kind of a cumulative way as part of this women's group and showing up online, having to you know put yourself out there in that way, how the cumulative effect of that has created really remarkable results in all of our lives. For me, I decided to get really personal. Uh, I left, I wanted to be as candid and honest as possible. I really believe that honesty is the antidote to shame. The truth is the antidote to shame and a lot of the problems that 
we see with lawyers or because of, you know, prolonged guilt and feeling not worthy, not good enough, all that shame. So I think truth is really the antidote to that. So I wanted to be as truthful as I could be in my chapter. And I, after I left big law, I had decided that I wanted to start my own business, uh, coaching other attorneys, and I had become a certified coach. But I also went back to a firm that uh, I had worked at prior to going to big law. I worked there throughout law school. And it's my journey of realizing that wasn't really the right decision for me either. But I had been too unwilling to sit in my own discomfort of like taking all the risks. And I finally reached a point where I was willing to assume that risk, willing to assume all of the discomfort, kind of sit and swim in it for long enough to get to the other side of this journey that I'm on. And thank goodness that I did, uh, because even though it has been, it's been a little over a year since I left um, and went full time with coaching, but it wasn't always comfortable. It has been a miraculous uh, journey and I've struggled with a lot of things along uh, the way, but learned a ton about myself in the process. So, Olivia, so I want to go back to the question Bob asked. So, if I'm, I'm a, let's say the the prototypical, stereotypical, you know, caricature, old white male partner, and I hear you, and I say, you're well, becoming I, that, Jeff. You're 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 becoming huh. that. I am that. I'm yeah. embodying that out here in San Francisco. So, the the, I say to you, listen, I've listened to you, and all this talk about about helplessness and awareness and vulnerability and shame. Like, why would I want my lawyers to go into this? Aren't, if I, aren't I just going to drive them out of the law if I let them explore this stuff? Doesn't this stuff, aren't we just opening a Pandora's box into, frankly, a whole load of bullshit that if I bring this up, I'm going to actually lose people, lose money. What, how could you tell me in, in, in or what, is, what have you found in your experience in big law that can actually get to those people, those naysayers that believe that emotions are, are best dealt with by burying them, you know, 10 feet under in your backyard and never looking at them again. I very candidly, I think the question is like, how's that working for you now? And we have a different generation of lawyers going through law school and big law firms right now. And it's not the baby boomer generation, which was fine with never being home, dealing with, you know, nonstop work, like millennials and Gen Zers want a different quality of life. So I think over time, these generations will, and I I advocate for that. I think that is how you make true lasting change is that they just have to be intolerant of some of these working conditions. And I hate to, you know, make it sound like super victim-y or blame-y, but I really do think that that's how change happens over time. They will opt out at such large numbers that it becomes a bottom line issue for firms because there's not going to be anyone to take over or turn business over to as part of like the firm's legacy planning. People will opt out. What I love right now about legal tech and some of the uh, really innovative ways to run legal businesses or legal services businesses that are happening in this day and age is that it's completely disrupting and it will happen over time, Um, not overnight necessarily, but I think faster than some of the traditional law firm models believe is that this industry is going to be completely disrupted and these very smart young attorneys are going to figure out they don't have to do it this particular way in order to make a lot of money as lawyers. So then follow up to that question and then that all makes sense to me. And I think that's a an excellent way to, to pitch by just because you don't have to convince them. You can just say to them, 
your thinking is generational. This generation has something different. And so to that end, you know, Bob and I oftentimes, what we provide, um, if you look at our website, a reading list, and we talk about the power of vulnerability, which obviously comes from Brene Brown and others. Do you have, if you had to recommend um, three books or three podcasts, besides, of course, Iron Advocate, which would be, you know, maybe two. Number one. Besides that, what else, what would you refer people to in terms of resources to help them get deeper into the, to, to the, the real work you're talking about? Yeah. Um, I love my all-time favorite podcast. I joke with people and say a podcast episode changed my life. And it truly did. Uh, that's how I found out about coaching when I was at Big Law. I was obsessed with getting out of Big Law and I wanted to start my own business. Uh, so I was binging entrepreneurship podcasts and came across one where someone talked about life coaching. And I got turned on to Brooke Castillo's podcast called the Life Coach School podcast. And that's really all about like the coaching tools that I use. Um, her work is, I think it's the best podcast next to Iron Advocate on the market. Uh, it truly is life-changing content that's available for free. I binged it before I became a client of Brooks and went on to get certified. Uh, I really love Gary Vaynerchuk's content too. And I think it's really applicable to young lawyers or lawyers at any stage because he talks really about something that I work with my clients uh, on discerning and figuring out all the time, which is why are you doing what you're doing? And we're we're um, we're big on Tim Ferriss, um, you know, on Iron Advocate. Um, Search inside yourself is a book that uh, Jeff and I utilize all the time uh, as a sort of um, uh, this. This great question by Jeff because we haven't actually kind of run through some of this of our own on Iron Advocate. So search inside yourself. Um, but what comes to my mind um, is the things we're talking about now, and and the way you really intelligently and eloquently put what could happen with the younger lawyers. But how do we stop those young lawyers from the tipping point of getting swallowed to the money and the kind of rigidity of particularly big law, right? But the law that is always pushing um, to not really have drastic change, right? That's the inertia of the profession, ironically. So how do we stop that tipping point from pulling these new young next generation lawyers into the wagon ruts of how we've gotten here before time after time, generation after generation? Can I add to that question too, for you? Since it's not a big enough question already. To add to that question, how do you, and you said this before, how do you, besides the emotional piece, make the bottom line, case because these are businesses how do you make the add to what bob said make the bottom line case to these same folks that they're going to be able to make as much if not more money doing what you suggest which is more far more emotionally healthy yeah so i mean i used to be a chronic overworker myself i'm going to answer jeff's question and then move um to yours roberts uh i used to be a chronic overworker myself i know from my own experience that working when you haven't slept in three days isn't productive. I didn't bill enough. I didn't do great work when I was at that level of exhaustion. Also, people are opting out. So firms have huge retention issues because of the burnout, because of the overwhelm, because of the stress, and none of it's being dealt with. So in order to not have that turnover, you make more money not having to train or retrain new new blood that comes into the firm. As 
the other issue with retention is also um, a, a women's issue, right? That, or, and women and my, uh, minority people of color within law firm environments, as companies start to require these diversity initiatives be met, especially with like deal teams and transactional uh, law environments, that they be staffed a certain way, that they have a certain number of women on the team, that they certain have a certain number of uh, people of color on the team, as that becomes an issue and firms are unable to retain uh, people in these minority groups, that uh, they're going to lose out on the business. So it helps with productivity of your attorneys not having to deal with retention um, and attrition issues. And then also whether or not you'll even be able to get the business from some of these like larger corporations that are starting to require the vendors and people that they work with to staff deals a certain way. But you know, that that's a great point, but that's where some of pushing this outside the box agenda, because yes, the corporations are starting to figure it out, but it's, it's, it's sort of a, a, a two headed thing as I see it, which is that, you know, they're only really going to figure out if the lawyers educate them. Right. And, you know, they want to know, but they don't want to know. They still want to get their legal work done. They still want to make their money. So it's going to require the younger lawyers to push back either inside these firms where they're sometimes locked out, particularly when they are uh, and or either black or of color and or women um, already up against it. And of course, also the, um, you know, how do they get the work if they're going to go outside the paradigm of big law? Right. So how do we both through the recruiting of law students in law school? Um, you know, you are way younger than Jeff and I, so you're close enough to law school to really talk to how do we get our hands dirty before the lawyers even get into big law? It almost has to be a bit of a revolution as I see it, because there's so much money at the top of big law, so much power, so much, uh, um, you know, inertia toward doing it the way it's been done. So is there a way that we can get our hands around it at the recruiting, the educating, educating level with people just like you that are talking to young lawyers and, and, and law students and people thinking about becoming lawyers? Uh, I think the answer to that is yes. First, I think the big law model will change in time, especially as you start to see the trend of states reforming their laws where non-lawyers can be owners of businesses. You're going to see some tech disruption in this space where people don't have to go into big law in order to make these big six-figure salaries starting off. I think there's going to be a lot of tech money um, and legal ops innovation that make these big salaries available outside of this very one myopic path. Um, I also think there needs to be more of a candid conversation. I know personal injury lawyers who kill it, right? It's a slower way to get to half a million dollars a year, but they get there. Really challenging the idea of how, that's one of the things I love working with clients on when we're talking about money and how do we create the kind of money that they want. I think there's a lot of different avenues to get to a certain number than just staying in big law, but you have to be a little bit more risk tolerant. That being said, to go back to like the institutional infrastructure question here, I, I think there needs to be onus in a couple different places. One, law schools. And I agree, you're always going to have those like money never sleeps, Wall Street types. Obviously, that's, you know, a financial parallel that I'm drawing here. But like the Gordon Gecko mentality of just work until you make it or die one or the other. So there's always going to be that in law school. I don't know that you're going to be able to breed that out entirely. And there's probably always going to be a market and a place for that. What we want to do is have like the pendulum swing and 
create like a new center line for that. I think it should be taught. I think mindset work should be taught in law schools. Uh, my aunt works for uh, a law school in Chicago and we were talking recently and I was telling her about one of the webinars I was doing about um, how to manage time. I think that was, it was back, back a, couple, a couple months back and I was going through the concepts that I was going to be teaching. She was like, everyone needs to know this. This is really helpful. Like this would be helpful to students, not just lawyers. I'm like, yeah, because students become lawyers. Of course, she's like, oh, you should come in and, and speak, which like, of course I'm, you know, welcome to do. And this actually goes to the institutional issue with law firms too. This isn't a one day seminar problem. That's the difference, right? In law firms, to go back to your question of like, how do you get them to care? I think law firms need to start mandating or having available one-on-one -on -one coaching for firm management, partners, non-equity partners, people in those positions and associates naturally, but it's not going to, when it's a diversity and inclusion issue or it's an attorney development department issue that's totally separate and siloed from the rest of the firm, everyone goes into like the firm conference room or the firm you know, convention area, depending on how big the firm is, everyone sits there, reads their email or checks their email for the two hours that they need to be there, isn't really focused or present. And they're like, when can we get this shit over with so we can go back to work? Right. Let me jump in on that because I think this you're making an excellent point. And I think it's the thing that, that, that Bob and I have been talking about in our podcast and we talk about it all the time. And, you know, Bob having been doing this 25, six years, and me too, and running a firm where lots of money flows through it. If you don't talk to these folks, at the level of money and bottom line, you might as well be speaking a different language, right? And so the question, I think everything you're saying is exactly right. And I think the, the answer to the question, the question I have for you, and I keep asking this in different ways, and you're answering it really well. How do you get a mind, change a mindset? But, you know, it's like this, put it this way. If a liberal Democrat never talks about economic um, never talks about entrepreneurship and economic um, prosperity, you'll never convince somebody who's in the center or on the right, the paradigm to vote for you. You just forget about it. And you'll be criticized as being an idiot and somebody who doesn't live in the quote real world. The law firm equivalent of that is how do you get these, the case for them, you know, diversity, diversity is good business. Why is that? It can never be about doing the right thing. It has to be, I think you're onto it about how, how do you get, how do you retain people and so the question is to me, how do you get that message out in a way, again, that can be heard by somebody who is focused like a laser on their money? And, and I'm going to do what Jeff did and jump in even more. It's, I don't even know if it's a question anymore. We're just throwing a bunch of crap in the stew, right? This is, this is Iron Advocate. So Jeff and I got here because sort of coaching each other daily for 26 years and along the way figured out, hey, we can be better lawyers and make more money because we are having these discussions. And because instead of, you know, just feeling sick to my stomach and going in and delivering the closing, I'm going to embrace it. I might even talk to the jury about it. I might even tell them how sick I felt, or I might even tell them what a difficult process it is to talk to right. them. And, 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 and then I might even connect with them more. And now I might get bigger verdicts and I might make more money. Well, all those things happened to me. Okay. And so then, you know, Jeff and I, you know, we should talk to other lawyers about it, right? So, so 
you know, you're on the front lines. And as you said, you want to take coaching into these partners. Uh, so now we're just going to dump all that mess back on you, which is, um, you know, across the board. And one of the things you said is maybe talk to lawyers about a different path. Well, maybe you don't need big law. You can go to plaintiff's work. Then there's the risk aversion and all that. But but let's keep it to what you were, which is you said all managing partners, partners, equity and non-equity associates need coaches and law firms. Um, and now we're like really drilled down, which is we need to coach them how they can use this to make more money, right? We're going to help you communicate with your corporate clients. We're going to help you understand the new world. We're going to help you, you know, get out of the way of these things that are in your way, right? Um, so so talk to big law, talk to the Amlaw 100 firms. Um, they hear this podcast. Um, what does that look like? You go in there, you have the conference room, okay? You got, you know, you got these partners for an hour or two a week. Uh, what are you doing with them? Let me, let me add to Bob's question, okay? <laughs> so you got three questions. I'm a... I'm the big firm managing partner. I said, I want you to come in here. You've got 45 seconds to tell me why I should do this. What are you going to say? I gave her 60 before. Now it's 45. Okay, 60. We'll Go. give her 50, 52 seconds. Go ahead. 52 seconds. What are you going to say? Yeah. Talk to them. Yeah, the only way you're going to maximize your workforce is to make them work and operate in a more intentional manner. The only way to do that is for them to understand and be aware of what's preventing them from performing at an optimal level. And everyone has issues, whether they realize it or not, everyone can be better. So if you really want to lean into that next level of efficiency, productivity, success, and quality, which every law firm owner does, then the way to do that is to understand what you're thinking and how it's producing the results you currently have and how to reverse engineer that process in a mathematical way, which you truly can, to have the mindset shifts in order to take it to the next level. Uh, what does that look like in practice? It, it looks like I'm working with um, a department head in an AMLA 100 firm. And he and I, like it's the little things, not to like get down to the minutia, but like that's what coaching is. I talk to people about like the most mundane parts of their day and then we optimize it. It's so much fun for me. And sometimes we're working on like stress reduction. Sometimes we're like, how can we never have to go through like this mental exercise in a string of emails? So I'm going to go into like the nitty gritty with you guys. We just totally process mapped what, so the person that I'm working with um, answers to another executive within the firm and then also has a ton of people um, in his department answering to him. So he's a little bit of a go-between. And he, I'm sure we've all worked with people like this. He sends a higher up, uh, you know, a list of six things in an email and gets a response to one or two, but he needs answers to all six. And we went through and rather than like sitting in frustration or sitting in confusion or dwelling or rethinking this every single week or every couple of days when this happens, we've gone through understanding exactly what he can expect from the other person, understanding he can't control the other person on that end of the email. He can sit in frustration about it or he can figure out how he responds no matter what the person on the other side of the email chain does. And we went through and he decided that um, he really thought this through and mapped it out what he was comfortable with. So everyone that comes to him with a request or a question has to send it to the person above him once first. If they don't get an answer, then they come back and say, hey, can you raise this up the flagpole for me? He says, yes, sure. He sends a weekly email one day a week. Okay. And it includes whatever he's decided 
either that he can't answer. So that's like the next step on the flow chart. Can I answer this myself? You know, does it absolutely no matter what have to go above me? If it does, then it goes in the email. If he doesn't get a response to the email, he sends a follow-up email two days later. He never has to decide what, again, whether do I call, do I ping him, do you know through the messenger, what do I do? It's two days later. If he hasn't received a response yet, he sends a follow-up email. If he doesn't receive a response within two days after that, he calls. Anything else goes in the next week's email. He never has to think about it again. It's the same reason that Barack Obama and Mark Zuckerberg wear the same clothing, right? It's decision fatigue. If you never have to think about that again, and that's just done for you, think about doing that every area of your life, how efficient you would be. And yes, is that your vision for the culture shift in the law? from the bottom to the top and the top down to the bottom? And if so, how, how do we teach it? Culture shift of it being like that decided and that formulaic. And open to opening your mind and your kind of soul to that, right? Yeah, I mean, the first step in that is like noticing and get, gaining awareness on like, it's causing you frustration in the first place and how does that affect you throughout your day, right? So, so, that, so that's what I'm getting at, right? That's the dialogue that comes before any of this, that mm -hmm. all that on, that's the aversion. The aversion is to that, yeah. you know, the, the process works. The aversion is that I don't need any of this. This isn't a problem for me. Uh, that aversion runs deep, 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 deep. Yeah, uh, like, even if you ask my dad, he'd be like, my parents don't really understand coaching. They're like, why does, I guess people, some people need help. I'm like, no, everyone needs help. This okay. isn't like uh, you're broken and you need to be fixed. This is just, we can all perform better. So, right. So yeah. And, and the dialogue has to be, I'll say, you know, I wrote a closing on a yoga mat and, a, you know, a lawyer will look at me like I have four heads. Yeah. Um, but then we have to have the dialogue, but it's, it's, it's getting the doors and, and, and kind of the ears open. Jeff, were you going to say something? No, I was going to tell, you know, this is, this is a story Bob and I have told many times. It's just, it's, you know, it's the, you know, the, 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 the product Febreze that take the removes odors. That's that product was developed and they realized they had something very special. So they wanted to go test it on people and they said, who they can test it on? Okay. People who live in trailers and who have tons of cats and they went who objectively live in places that stink. Okay. They went to test it out on them and across the board, the people are like, what are you talking about? It smells great in here. <laughs> you don't have any problems. And this is how it is with, you know, a lot of these partners are just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so they're walking around their law firms with their pants unzipped and like, you know, they're, they're, they're going, they're, everybody can see they're out of their minds, but they don't see it themselves. And it's, this is the, this is the challenge that Bob and I are talking about. And it is a whole paradigm shift. There's a shame issue here. And I coach a lot on should thinking. Like we have these should thoughts that make us feel guilty, make us feel ashamed. And the biggest should thought here is that lawyers think they should have this figured out. Lawyers think they should know how to do this. Whether it's yep. manage their mind, manage their time, manage other people. They think they should know how to do it. And my challenge to them is why would you think that? You've never learned. But now's the time to learn. And the only way to do that is to work with someone who can truly train you and show you how to do that. Right. And be vulnerable that you actually have something to learn. Right? Correct. Mm -hmm. Right. That's right. So, and, and we'll, when we get back together, we'll pick it up there because that—that's how Jeff and I've spent the last twenty-six years is talking about what a fucking mess we are. So, so 
the it's, last uh, week I mean, we've had these conversations. I mean, just a, I mean, I, right. I mean, I, right. Just a fucking mess, you know? Uh, so, right. so we'll, we'll, we'll pick it up there. I mean, we've only just, uh, we've only just gotten started. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Iron Advocate and that you take what you've learned and integrate it into your own personal practice. As always, we leave you with a minute of mindfulness. Breathe in, breathe out, and we'll see you next time.